Everyone deserves a chance in the driver's seat. For GM and Revolt, that means leading the way on the road to an all-electric future and envisioning a world with zero crashes, zero tailpipe emissions, and zero congestion. GM's committed to making EVs accessible for everybody. That means you too. So what are you waiting for? GM's got the keys. You grab the wheel. Learn more about an all-electric future and the 000 initiative at GM.com. GM, everybody in. Welcome to Wow Black, a seriously opinionated podcast, bringing you the real and raw on anything happening while black. If black culture's there, we're there. If you're pissed or empowered, then let's talk about it. Ride with us on this all black everything. Everybody, welcome back to Wild Black. Welcome back. You got Vince here with you. Art still in the building. This podcast was recorded at drsstudiosatl.com. We here with uh, probably, honestly, a topic you didn't think we were coming to you with, but we are here with it anyway. A new one. You, it's gonna blow your mind for a little bit. Right. This is this is some. This is different. Like, this is just different. I'm gonna put it out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so real light. Like, I wanna. Uh, Art, what kind of car are you driving, bro? A Yukon. What's the what's Denali. the what's the fastest you've ever gone in any car? About 110. First off, where you, where was you going? What was her name? I was. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! Shout out to my wife. <laughs> Good say. Right, right, right. Yep. But but it definitely wasn't in my truck though. Well, you kind of ain't gonna do that. But yeah, Bill, what's the fastest you've ever driven? Man, calculated 207 at Atlanta Motor Speedway, qualifying for my Cup debut. In 2006, but I say calculated because the thing they don't do in race cars is put in speedometers because even though we are pretty bold and brave and all that stuff, we don't want to see how fast we're going. Our objective is to beat the guys around us. But yeah, calculated speed was 206, 207. That's crazy. It's not even a speedometer. You have no idea. It's like, you don't care. speedometer at all. Like you... You don't care. Man, I mean, nobody's there to arrest you so for speed. So if it's 300, I'm going to go 300 because I'm trying to hey, win. Hey, man, I, I hate listen. to argue. I beg to differ. I care. I need to know. No. Wow. You I've don't been about know. 89. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe wanna, 91. All you want to be is faster than the rest of the competition. Mm. That's the key. That's the key mm. to winning, beating everybody else. It doesn't matter if you're going 100. It doesn't matter if you're going 200. Whatever. As mm. long as you're beating the competition, get into the checker flag first. That That's is crazy. it. All right. Wow. So for breakfast, man, what, what kind of cereal are y'all on right now? What kind of cereal are y'all doing? Uh, what, you, what you on in the house? I don't eat cereal generally, but but you know, my girls, they like Fruit Loops. Fruit Loops. And Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Okay. What about your fam? Well, we don't mess with cereal too much. Well, I take that back. And now we're eating like the organic joints, and I forget what they call. <laughs> I forget what they call. It's like organic leaves or something like that. Uh-huh. I don't really mess with it too much. But more importantly, Bill, what kind of cereal are you on lately, man? <laughs> <laughs> This, Man, this, this, this kills me. I love this. I, I love this little-known black history fact. I love this. Go ahead and tell them what kind of cereal you want. that's true, too. That's what Tom Joyner used to say back in the day, for those that remember. You know, yeah. they, mm-hmm. when my birthday came around, which was actually uh, about three or four days ago, they would say, shout out to Bill Lester. Little known black history fact. Black man racing a NASCAR, that sort of thing. Anyway, man, I was fortunate because I was honored to be on Honey Nut Cheerio cereal boxes for two years in a row. This brother was, it was a real-life brother from NASCAR on cereal box. cereal box. cereal box, man, scaring kids at the breakfast table. It was a <laughs> phenomenal thing, man. I mean, I would have never thought in all the things that might have come my way in racing that I would be on a Cheerios box, man, Honey Nut Cheerios. Mama, do these, do these cereals taste different <laughs> with the black man on the- <laughs> Mama, where did you get these cereal from? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That, that too. That, that's got to be a bootleg box. That can't be for real. Shoot, you must have just stuck that, stuck that picture on top of the Honey Nut Cheerios beat. And that was me for real, man. It was quite an honor. It was pretty cool. But Wild Black family, today we are talking NASCAR Wild Black. And we've got Bill Lester in the studio with us. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him in just a second because we got to handle this business like we always do. So most of you all already know what we do. But for those who are 
new who might be Bill Lester fans or NASCAR fans, let me tell you a little bit about what Wild Black does. We tell the stories of black folks in any industry or area who by choice or by force and because of the color of their skin or their blackness act in a nuanced manner. Think about how we act at work when we may have to code switch in order to get along and fit in. Think about the things that we do in order to ensure that we survive a traffic stop, both alive and unarrested. And we Mm -hmm. accompany those stories with expert information to help us all survive and thrive and to remind you that you are not alone in the struggle. Two, we tell the stories of struggle and success from us, for us, and by us that should inspire us to go and grow. And that's all we do. And while you don't pay to hear these episodes, we do need something from you. We need you to do three things. One, go and share these episodes with your friends, with your family, with anyone who you think might listen and benefit from the words and the concepts and the success strategies that we share with you. Two, hit us on iTunes, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, iHeart, Spotify. Wherever you listen, go hit us with a five-star review and leave some comments. Let people know what to expect, what you think. Those things truly do help us in our rankings and in our search engine optimization so that as people search for Wild Black or Black Podcast, we pop up. And three, hit us on our social media. Catch us on Wild underscore Black on Instagram. Email us at wildblackpodcast at gmail.com. Talk to us. We, we always are on those platforms. We monitor them. We'll communicate with you. This is not a show that's based in a monologue. This is indeed a dialogue, both, both between us and our guests, as well as us and our listeners. So check our social platforms out. Yes, yes. But let's get back to Bill Lester. And his driving, what'd you say, 206? Well, how fast About was it? About two, 206, 207. Jesus. You know, I mean, what's a mile an hour? But it was clearly Man. over 200. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're just hoping like heck that thing sticks when you're in the corners. Man, that is crazy. So what I want to, um, I want to intro, Bill. I want to tell you a little bit about what he's done, because he's done a lot. So I'm going to read it. This time I can't freestyle it. I got to read it. So our guest today, Mr. Bill Lester, represents black history, black progress, and black inspiration. He is absolutely a pioneer and is considered fearless in his pursuit of his goals and his dreams. Bill's a graduate of UC Berkeley with a degree in electrical engineering and computer science. But believe me, that's not why he's here today. He is a black NASCAR driver who has experienced success on the highest and most competitive racing stages and circuits. Let me hit you with a few of his accomplishments. Bill's the first African-American in NASCAR history to compete at the Second Tier Xfinity Series in 1999. He's the first African-American to earn a pole position in NASCAR Camping World Truck Series, and he's the first African-American to compete and win in the NASCAR-sanctioned United Sports Car Series in 2011. He has been featured, as we already talked about, on the Honey Nut Cheerios box in 2003 to 2004, and he's been featured on the cover of Black Enterprise Magazine in April of 2004, not to mention many other features in publications and television programs. He received the Trailblazer and Motorsports Award and the Jackie Robinson Trailblazer Award from the Rainbow Push Organization in 2004 and 2006. Why do I keep saying 2004? My man, it made up a year. Right? (laughs) But I'm not done. He also received the Trailblazer Award from Rise Magazine in 2013 and the Sam Lacey Pioneer Award from the National Association of Black Journalists in 2013. And while I'll stop there... Everything he did has not stopped. He has more accomplishments, more stats, more awards. But frankly, my mouth is dry, and he has done too damn much (laughs) for me to keep on going. This brother has done everything that you can do, and he's doing it in a place that is historically and perceptually unfriendly to us. So I want to get into this thing a little bit. Bill, man, I told him a whole lot. Tell him a little bit more about you. Well, man, you know— the reason I became a race car driver is because I had an obsession with cars and speed. You know, when I was young, my parents said I didn't go anywhere without a Hot Wheels or a Matchbox. Mm. And you talking about speed, like the hair moving on your head, not the drugs. We, we don't do drugs here. <laughs> just, just to clear it up. Just to clear it up. Yeah, I'm talking about the, you right. know, the, the air The wind th- whipping through your hair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> You're a nut. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I had a uh, obsession and a love affair with cars, um, race cars when I was watching on television. 
And lo and behold, when I became a teenager, I got my driver's license. And it, man, it was game on. It was like the Fast and the Furious before it was a movie. I was doing all <laughs> sorts of things that I don't condone. <laughs> all but, type of things you don't want your children to do exactly, now. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, and somebody, and I was street racing and, and I was very good at it. I was living in the uh, Oakland Hills in California at the time and uh, Skyline Boulevard up there was like my domain, you know, bunch of, uh, you know, sweeping corners and hairpins and up and down, left and right. I mean, I just throwing car, the car around sideways and I mean, I was just a terror up there, right? And uh, got a reputation and, you know, I got some advice from people that were saying, look, you know, you have a skill, you have a talent. Before you kill yourself or somebody else out here goofing around, take it to a racetrack. And it's like, okay, so how do you get to a racetrack? Well, you have to have the financial wherewithal to buy a race car. Well, unlike a lot of folks that are out there in racing now, I did not come from money, okay? <laughs> and so when I was telling my parents about, you know, this desire that I had, they were like, that's great. I hope you're able to do it, you know? <laughs> Good uh, luck, son. <laughs> your springboard is going to be your education. That's it. And so I was up, like I said, growing up in Northern California, there right by Silicon Valley, um, decided to go to Cal Berkeley, got my rear end kicked, like I said, for four years, actually four and a half, but had those summer internships at Hewlett Packard and then started going to work for the Hewlett Packard company immediately after I got my degree. Almost the first thing I did was buy a race car, started racing in amateur sports car club of America road racing in Northern California. First year I was rookie of the year. The next year I was Northern California road racing champion for my class in, my, in the division that I was racing in. And I was like, man, I'm going to be a professional like that overnight, right? Because mm-hmm. I mean, that's how it happens. That's what you think <laughs> right. happens. Uh-huh. Here's the harsh reality of the situation. I got those accolades and everything. And I was calling the, the sponsors, the corporations saying, you know, I've done this. I've done that. I'm also unique because, you know, I'm not like everybody else who's out there. Wow, wouldn't this be a great for your marketing and, you know, moving your product service and all your advertisement and all that sort of thing. And I was thinking that, you know, I was the type of person that would be great for the brand. You know, string a sentence together, had a look that wasn't intimidating or anything like that. Wouldn't go too far against the grain, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, I was one of them dudes that would be okay. I wouldn't be too intimidating, right? So the phone uh, did not get picked up. I made the phone (laughs) calls. The calls were not answered. And I was like, wow, first experience with the realities of corporate America and being black in corporate America, as if I didn't realize that from being in the high tech sector, <laughs> mm-hmm. but really appealing to them from a marketing you know, perspective mm-hmm. in terms of how to really move product and such. And I realized then very early that um, it's very much a country club environment in terms mm-hmm. of what's going on, in terms of the people that are in the C-suite level. And even when you find a lot of us that get to the C-suite level, I was astonished by how many of us forgot where they came from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They basically got comfortable. They settled in. They became risk averse. Want to you know, protect their spot. Absolutely. Yep. They in, weren't going to put their neck out. Their you know, no, they weren't going to do that. So, make a long story short, I didn't continue in amateur racing because I wanted to become a professional. I went ahead and entered a few professional races. Did extremely well. Picked up the phone again and started making those calls, saying, "Hey, I've done this and I've done that as well." Still crickets, other end of the line. So, you know, okay. So I concentrated on the engineering. I quickly and like. Less than four years, went from a software development engineer to a research and development project manager. I was managing these folks writing software development code and successful by everybody else's definition, but my own, because I define success as happiness. Are you looking forward to getting up in the morning and doing what you're doing? And what's the last thing you're thinking about before you go to bed? I'm thinking about racing. How can I continue to race? Not about all these accolades and being on the fast track management, fast track in uh, in the high tech sector. you it were successfully unhappy. I was successfully unhappy. I was, you know, like I said, it was, it was unbelievable. So I had a 15-year career at Hewlett-Packard. Um, towards the end of that career, I got married to my wife, Cheryl. And she knew going in what I really wanted to do with my life. Right. You know, even though I had this great, you know, job and was successful, everybody, everybody's definition but my own, she realized that wasn't my calling. It wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't what I felt I was given a gift to do. I was never formally trained to be a race car driver. I learned from observation in the school of hard knocks. Right. You know, that's what I, I went out there on the street and did it and watched other people drive and all that kind of stuff. But Cheryl encouraged me because she said, listen, honey, you're not getting any younger. And you're not getting any easier to live with being mad that you're going and punching the clock in the, in the high tech sector. And so at 37 years of, of age, I left this successful career 
to put all my time and attention and focus on making my dream a reality. Really? At 37 years. Most people That's at 37 years itself. of age wow. are comfortable and risk averse. They're not going to do it. I'm like, you know, hey, I'm making six figures. You know, I'm like, why would I take a chance to do something I don't know if I'm going to be successful in? That wasn't my mentality. That was not how I was built. I love that. I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, long man. As I, knew, I didn't realize that. 37, I was working for Hewlett Packard. And then I went on a six-month leave of absence with them. And I said, you know what? I got to see if I can make this happen. I had a plan. Cheryl and I decided I had three years to make it happen or realize that I gave it my best shot. I gave all my time and attention and devotion to it, but it didn't happen. It just wasn't for me. So I had a three-year window to make it happen. And lo and behold, in that last year, I made it happen. I became a factory driver for Dodge. But I raced um, in 2006 at Atlanta Motor Speedway and made my debut in the Cup Series. And at that time became only the fourth black driver in like the last, since like the 60s to race at that level. You guys probably have heard of Wendell Scott. Yep. Okay. The story, the movie that was made about him was Grease Lightning. Yep. Had Richard Pryor starring in it with uh, Pam Greer. Yep. Yeah, he ran Pam in the Greer. 60s, in the <laughs> 70s. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Then, hey, Willie T. Ribs, Sorry. then Willie T. Ribs <laughs> came around in the 80s. Willie T. Ribs is the uh, first African-American to race in the Indy 500. Mm. He did that um, in, in, nine, in, the, in 1995 or so. But in the 80s, he got an opportunity to race at the cup level. So he was like the second after Wendell Scott. Then I came in the mid-2000s right. and raced in cup. And now there's a young brother named Daryl Wallace. They name him Bubba, mm -hmm. who's out there now racing with Richard Petty. So, yeah, you talk about a select group. Yeah. I'm one of the very few, one of the very proud to, you know, buck the trend to, you know, cause them to raise their eyebrows. That's and awesome. I can tell you a whole lot of stories. Well, you got some time. <laughs> one thing I want to say is out of everything you said, there's one thing I really want to call attention to. And it's, it's definitely an accolade to you because you made a very good decision in choosing your wife, because it, what, what does it say Absolutely. to have Cheryl? Shout out to you. We love the support to be able to, to be able to stand there and say, "Listen, while black, I'm gonna support Cheryl. you while you yes. go and handle this. Absolutely. I am behind mm -hmm. you." Hey, the power of a wife who is supportive, who's behind you and in front of you at the same time. Mm -hmm. Man, sign me up for that program. Yeah, That's what we all need. Yeah. That's She's it. like, "Yep, I ain't gonna be with you. You're gonna be unhappy." We That's know, right. We know what you really need to be doing. We'll give you three years. Plus, if That's you step me one more damn time because you ain't racing. <laughs> nah, brothers, I realize how blessed I have been to, you know, have a partner in her because she's had my back the whole way. And I would not have been in the position to be able to try to accomplish that without her. So, you know, she encouraged me. She, could be, she basically pushed me out of the nest because I had been brought up, you know, in the traditional um, light whereby... The black male or just the male is mm -hmm. the breadwinner, right? That's right. Yeah. The primary breadwinner. You know what I'm saying? Right. You can't go out there on a wing and a prayer while she might be doing what she's doing. So you, you know? got to keep that good job. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Right. But, you know, so don't think I just went out there and, you know, just relied on her. No, that wasn't right. the case. I've been, you know, able to put away a lot of savings and I invested really 100. well in the high tech sector because I knew it. Um, but yeah, you know, I wasn't going to be able to do this forever. So we did have that three year plan. That's love. And, and it came together. And so, I mean... I'm so happy that uh, she encouraged me to do it because otherwise I would have said, no, nah, maybe I'll, I, you know, I can't, you know, really? You still going to support me on this? And she's like, yes, we're not going to do it indefinitely, but uh, <laughs> you know, you're going to have your opportunity. You got to So you better focus in on it. And that's what I was doing. I mean, but it's beautiful to recognize like no, no jokes, but realizing that you probably would not have been able to accomplish what you did without or being there to help. There's no question about yeah, that. Yeah, like partnership, man. That's what it's about. Right. That's what it's about. Absolutely. That's, that's, I love that. Yeah, we'll be celebrating 25 years together this year. So, yeah. Happy yeah. anniversary. Thank you. Congratulations. Well, we, we do this thing called Wild Black Shit, and it's really just to kind of get to know you a little bit, let mm -hmm. our listeners hear who Bill Lester is, mm -hmm. and, and we'll jump in on that. Are you, Art, you want to take it? So our Wild Black uh, Shit portion, mm -hmm. we ask you a few questions. And it's really just to kind of get to know you a little bit. Let's do it. Get you loosened up. Uh, As if I'm not loose. Right. <laughs> right. You're ready. You're ready. You're ready. You're ready. Come on You're now. You're ready. <laughs> All right. First question. Since you are a car guy, mm -hmm. which of the following are you rocking and why? An Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme? A 63 Chevy Impala? A Dodge Cordoba? Or the 75 Cadillac Coupe DeVille? 
What? <laughs> man, my answer is none of the above. None of the, okay. No. As a so race car drive. I mean, come on, man. Fill in the blank. That ain't what, me. What would you? Oh, man. Hey, that's the Sunday cars. Really? <laughs> every day for Bill is like, Saturday. What you talking about? <laughs> look, look, easy. I drive a race car everywhere I go. Nah, I mean, really, I'm driving a grocery getter, man. My boys are 15. <laughs> my boys are 15 and 12. And, you know, shoot, half the time I'm Mr. Mom making sure that they're getting done what they need to get done. So I got the little four-door. You've seen it, man. Yeah. You've seen our, you know, we play some golf together. Yeah. So he's seen what I'm doing on a weekly basis. But on the weekend, man, I got to dodge Viper. So uh, I give it a little bit of exercise. So uh, I have some fun with that. I got that back in 2002 when I was a factory driver for Dodge. And um, it's a uh, graphite gray with silver stripes, GTS, last of the generation two body style, only 59 of these cars were made in this wow. color combination. It's a collector's item. And while it doesn't get a lot of exercise, it's got less than 10,000 miles on it. So mm -hmm. if you do the math, that's like 700 miles a year. Um, when it gets its exercise, it gets it proper. Got you, got you. Okay. Let's go to this third question. Okay. This is our signature question. We uh -oh. love this question. All right. Let's love this question. I'm glad I'm sitting down. <laughs> it's what do you love most about life while black? What do I love most about life while black? Well, you know what? I've always been black, so I don't know what it'd be like to be anything else. But, you know, I'm very proud of my ethnicity and, you know, the things that I've done to try to move us forward as a people. Um, what am I most proud of? I guess I'm proud of the fact that I've been a pioneer in mm -hmm. something True that story. we have historically not been able to gain access to or take advantage of. And already I see I've been able to open the door for somebody like Daryl Wallace. Mm -hmm. You know, it's been easier for him as a result of me, just like it was easier for me as a result of Willie T and what he did. And needless to say, Willie T was easier for him because of what Wendell Scott did. So, right. um, I'm very proud of that. You know, I mean, it's been a uh, very lonely road that I've, you know, driven. <laughs> I would say walk, but no pun unintended. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm very proud of that. Man, I think we have, honest to goodness, we have been blessed now. We're sitting down with you and we sat down with DJ Hurricane. Mm -hmm. And yep. what's, what's similar is like the, the, the fact that you all are real pioneers, not just someone who says I pioneer, but like there is researchable proof of the fact that your existence, dedication and participation in this entity, this thing, mm -hmm. created a space for more people that look like you to be there. That's pretty mm -hmm. damn amazing. Like to to really to really understand that you are truly a pioneer. Correct. Not not just a brother who got a good job, but mm -hmm. a real pioneer. Yep. Right. People who actually put African Americans on their back, right? The whole race in, right. in space—that's pioneering. That's he was going 206 miles an hour with an entire community on, his back. on the car, on holding the car. on, yeah. <laughs> hanging on, right? And you know what? That is something that you know I'd like to touch on real quick. Is that when I first came into the series, you know, into NASCAR, I would look at the stands, man, and you know, nobody looking like us. And once I was there racing on a consistent basis, I started to see the hue. Of the, of the stands change. And That's that was really so good. gratifying. To know it's you doing it. Yeah. Even mm -hmm. though, you know, I can remember a number of times where I was during driver introductions before the race started, booed by the establishment, the majority. Mm -hmm. I still saw that there were those of us that were out there and they were proud that, you know, I was That's there dope. and there yeah. was somebody that they could root for. You know, yes. I was somebody that they could be proud to see and, you know, follow specifically instead of a bunch of cars running around in circles. Right. It's like that particular car, that particular truck, the one that I was piloting, they were rooting for. And then just as quickly as, you know, you know, hey, I left NASCAR, the uh, financial opportunities were no longer presenting themselves. Right. And you got to have money to be in the sport. We could talk at nauseum about how much that costs. But, you know, hey, the opportunities did not continue. Right. And so I moved on to back to sports car road racing, which is what I started out on, or started out in before I ended my career. And then I, you know, I would go to a NASCAR race, you know, once in a while, and I just saw it, it went back to the way it was. And then, you know, I was like, That was man. a confirmation. Yeah. yeah. I people, was like, man. People came to watch you. Now that happens That's to me all are. the time too, though. Mm -hmm. But it's different, right? So when you you are racing, people came to watch you. It happens to me. Typically when I go shopping. Anytime I go shopping, I see people watching me, but it's 
I think the reasoning is different. But they, they came to support you. They came, they come to make sure I don't steal nothing. Right, exactly. That's, that's, <laughs> that, that's yeah. yeah, it's a different deal. I, there's people watching me too, but it's not. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> so you're a pioneer in your own right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Impacting mall security left right, and right around right. this thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, listen, I, I applaud him for that. You know, look, folks, get used to it. You know, we that's here. what it, yeah, we here. You know, as much as we can be here, again, I've I've told you guys about how difficult it is to gain access in this sport. You know, it's been called the last bastion of white supremacy. In your travels, like forget the sport wow. itself, right? Mm-hmm. But just when you were with your your team, your crew, and you were, were traveling, mm-hmm. did you did you ever find yourself like in an uncomfortable position that they gave you the opportunity to teach and improve them from a, a race or a culture standpoint? Yeah, they would absolutely be interested and intrigued by my experiences and such. And, you know, just like I was with theirs. Right. It was really a great, like, give and take scenario. They were like, you know, so what was it like to, you know, be, you know, one, go to college, you know, work in a major corporation and, you know, things of that nature. And what was it like living in California and all that kind of stuff? And, you know, thinking as everything was like um, Baywatch, <laughs> stuff like that. I'm like, oh. No, it's not. So, no, there was a lot of give and take and, you know, exchange. And, you know, it was it was healthy. You know, they got to know me better. It wasn't like, you know, fearing this black guy, you know, because when I first showed up on the scene, you know, they were looking at me like, okay, you know, afraid to talk to me. Like, you right. know, um, they didn't know what to expect. Right. Just like from my perspective, it's like, you know, obviously I came... I came across, I came out of the shoot with the wrong vocabulary. <laughs> right off the bat. And I was like, okay, let me try a different approach. Diabolical. Yeah, let me try a different well, approach. I, I have quick. a question that I think ties into that. Like, mm-hmm. Actually, two questions I'm, I'm going to put together in one. So okay. coming into the sport mm-hmm. at, at this level, being black and also understanding that there were not many black folks, African-Americans involved in the sport mm-hmm. before you, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So you are basically one of a kind. Yes, like as a res- as a result of that, how did how did you feel navigating through that situation, and how did your perceptions of them impact you? So when I first came to the southeast and you know realized I was going to be racing in NASCAR, there was definitely anxiety, you know, because of like I said, what I was exposed to as far as NASCAR is concerned when I was young and mm-hmm. seeing the Confederate flag and right. seeing a sea full of white folks. You know, nobody looking like us and, you know, the way they were talking. I mean, just everything about it was just like, just not appealing. It's just, you know, so, right. and, and I know about, you know, Southern culture, slavery, historically, all those sorts of things. You know, boy, you know, all right. that kind of stuff. And, you know, um, how I was listening to them say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. I mean, California, man, it's, you know, it's first name basis. There's no yes, ma'am, yes, sir, and all that sort of thing. It's just very different, right? Right. So I came in, I will admit, with, uh, some preconceived notions right. and obviously some, you know, some fears, some un, 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 uneasiness. Right. Because, you know, I really wasn't sure what I was getting into. You know, all I knew is I wanted to race. And it didn't really matter to me that I was going to have to learn all this stuff and that, you know, um, it was going to be somewhat of a, of, of a <laughs> steep learning curve for me. Because at the end of the day, Man, I just knew what I wanted to do, and that was race cars. And if right. um, NASCAR presented the best opportunity for really for me to really make a name for myself, because remember, fellas, I'm 40 years old. I'm yeah. not going to have a long career. I right. started late, right? I mean, 40 years old is when most professional athletes are retiring from whatever their given sport is, right? I'm starting out at 40. My story will never be written again. You know, it, it, I broke the mold. I had some concerns about it and everything, but I think to my you know, to my credit, I'm able to get along with anybody. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't have like a chip on my shoulder and I'm not trying to, you know, force my culture down your throat or whatever. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, we're trying to work together here to get to a goal, which is winning races, you know? So, hey, it's going to be a little bit of give and take on both sides. You know, they're going to understand it kind of, you know, a little bit more about me and, understand, and, and obviously be more comfortable as a result of that, you know? Feel free to say what they want to, as they would typically do. Although, of course, you know, any of those, you know, N-word type jokes, right. that didn't happen. I wasn't standing for any of that. Right. You know, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but for for on both sides, man, it was just, it was, I thought it was, it was a positive experience. 
Um, one that I never thought that I would really be entrenched in when I got in racing. Mm-hmm. You know, I just never thought that I would come to the Southeast and race in, in NASCAR. And um, the fact that I did just really just gave me that much more of a platform that allowed me to do so much more. Had I been in Indy, I probably would have never made as much of an impression in sports cars and road racing. I know I wouldn't have because, you know, the footprint wasn't as big. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be in NASCAR, which was at the time, you know, the and I think still is, Pinnacle. quite frankly— the largest form of motorsports in this Absolutely. country. Okay. Worldwide is Formula One. But I mean, regardless of the art, definitely from a branding perspective, oh, at yeah, the very man. least. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, was really able to make an impact. And I, I was just really, just, I'll say this as well, surprised and overwhelmed by the number of white folks that were fans of mine. And to this day, guys, I've been out of NASCAR for 12 years. Right. I get autograph requests still. All the time. That's dope. I got a, you know, six-year-old out-of-date website, which I woefully, you know, <laughs> got need to update. But I only really keep it up there and alive so that people can reach out to me. And I still get, you know, autograph requests for like die-cast cars, you know, that um, right. were models yeah, of the cars yeah. that I race. Autograph die-cast cars, hero cards, hats, you know, that's just awesome. paraphernalia wow. that's a decade old. You it know? just reminds me that, that there's something to be said for laying your own preconceived notions to the side. So right. the, the reason I asked you that question, which is typically the opposite of the question that I normally ask is, is because I have an experience that I closely relate to NASCAR. I lived in Mooresville, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I worked in an engineering plant way back off in the country. And for those of you all listening, Mooresville is like literally like, it's like NASCAR city. It's where so much of the stuff takes place at. And I was at work and I can remember one day this tall guy Walked in. I had just started working there. And when he walked in, every alarm bell in my head went off. It was like, no, sir. Stay away from him. He's got black folks tied up in his basement right now. <laughs> Abort mission. Mm-hmm. Right? He had the twang. He had the look. Or Everything about him <laughs> said, Vince, stay away. And I stayed away initially. And it took him coming to me mm-hmm. and sitting down and just starting a conversation with me to begin to melt all these perceptions I had away. Fast forward a full year later, he was the best guy I knew around there. I was going to his house that? to hang out. I was riding on tractors with him. I took my kids mm-hmm. to his house to learn. He brought me like fresh meat from his farm. Mm-hmm. And, and what I learned real quick was we have those, bell, those bells and alarms for a good reason. But we also have to input our own thought processes on top. Absolutely. And see if it's justified. So in in that case. And pressure tested. Right. In that case, everything worked out great. Mm -hmm. Alan was a great dude. I I talked to him every now and then still Mm -hmm. now. And I've been gone from there 13 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, But it leads me to my next question. That's a case where it went well. In your case, did it always go well? Or did you find yourself ever in situations where your blackness created an issue either for someone else that you had to overcome or just an issue in general? Well, you know, I remember a couple of circumstances where, you know, I heard people, you know, muttering that N-word under their breath and stuff like right. that, not not into my face. And, um, you know, so obviously that that's uncomfortable. And there's been other things, like I said, you know, booing during driver introductions for no reason. Yeah. Um, you know, but... Hey, I'm not going to please everybody. I, right. You know, it's just, and I usually consider that to be just their upbringing. You know, yeah, that's right. just the way that they've been exposed to things. Because, you know, when you have kids and you see how when they're younger, they all play together. They don't see black and white. They don't see differences. They just see somebody they want to play with. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, parental or adult influence comes into play. And then people start getting biases and stuff like that. It's just right. ridiculous how that happens. It's like, man, why are we, why are these kids getting soiled and, you know, jaded and stuff like that? Well, it's because the, you know, exposures that, that come to, to bear. So, you know, yeah, there's been some, some things that have happened, but I don't try to hold that against them, I right. usually look at that as a situation where it's ignorance, right. you know? It's just they've been influenced that way. Right. They don't know any better, potentially. They haven't been exposed to anybody else or yep. whatever. So anybody yep. that's different, you know, yep. that sort of thing. Um, you but, take the Michelle Obama, we go high up. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I do. It's like, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty. 
Right. That's really what it comes down to. So I've, I've got a question on the diversity in NASCAR in general. Mm-hmm. Since I lived in North Carolina and I have friends who still work for NASCAR now, I'm, I'm, a f- I'm familiar with the fact that they've had diversity programs. Yes. And I don't want to say they haven't worked because there is increased diversity mm-hmm. in the sport, right? There is. Now, have they worked like gangbusters? I don't, no. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> right. So the question I have is, do you think the lack of diversity in racing probably due to both of these, but which one do you think it's more of? Or is it circular? Is it the fact that African-Americans haven't been interested enough into the sport to push our way to it? Or is it the fact that the industry doesn't create opportunities and open the door for us to walk in? It's both. It's quite frankly both. Um, I'm asked on a fairly you know, regular basis, why aren't there more African-Americans in racing? And especially, or in particular, why aren't there more drivers? Right. And I said, it's Two reasons, exposure and opportunity. Right. You have to be exposed to it at a young age to aspire to right. want to do it. And then you have to have the opportunity to participate. And those have been two things that have been very hard for us to come, you know, to overcome. Because typically when we're young playing, it's okay, go out and play with your friends. Well, it's not go out there and play with a race car with your friends, right? It's usually, you know, go play football, go play catch, go, you basketball, know, basketball, football, yeah. baseball, whatever. The case. I didn't go get it. Yeah. You know, things that are easily accessible that are right there. Right. Not let's take the family, <laughs> put them all in the car and you need some, some rest, brother. And then, <laughs> and then go out to a racetrack, you know, that's not what's happening for right. us. Because to do that, oftentimes you have to have the adult, the parent interested in wanting to do it, you know. Mm-hmm. And most of us um, parentally are not interested in going to a NASCAR track because of all the things, the stigmas and all the things we see. Why right. do we want to go there, right? So the exposure doesn't take place, right. right? But even if it does, and there are a lot of young black kids that I've spoken to and have reached out to me and such and said, how do I become like the next Bill Lester, whatever the case is? Then there's the opportunity aspect. Right. You have to have the dollars that are required <clears throat> to participate. And we just don't have that access to capital. You know, it's been very, very difficult. Women have moved much further along than African-Americans have in the sport. And that's because these young girls are exposed to it because, you know, and I'm talking about white girls. Right. Because their you know, father, whatever right. the case is, bring them into the racetrack, whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. And they have that um, opportunity with that access to capital to get them in the, behind the wheel and, 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 you know, out there competing. Oftentimes, because these girls, um, they are white and have these people in corporate America that give them those dollars right. and provide that, that capital so that they can become competitive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's why we haven't really been able to get through because we've been, you know, just fraught with rejection. I can't tell you how many times I've been rejected from sponsorship proposals from corporations that I've submitted them to. Um, and I've even had a circumstance where corporations have liked what they saw in terms of my sponsorship proposal, did not realize I was black. And then when the meeting took place and they saw what I looked like, all of a sudden the phone line went dead. Wow. I was like, holy cow. So, you know, we're up against all those things. You know, and like, and it's, it's such a, that's such a tough place because the, the activist side of me, the, the brother side of me here is that. And the first thing I say is, and that's just classic racism. But then the business side of me kicks in and you start to think, is it racism? It's definitely unfortunate. But that sponsor is looking at it like, okay, I need to put my marketing dollars behind someone Mm -hmm. who is going to be a fan favorite. Mm -hmm. Someone that the fans are going to follow and then recycle those dollars back to me in, in terms of ROI. Right. And if I put it behind this black driver who doesn't get the fan base that the white drivers do, do I get my money back? Yeah, is that a good investment? And like that's, it's, it's a really tough place to be in because the root of it is racism, right? Especially in the fans and who they attach to. But the very next layer is business. Yeah. And you know what I've come to find out is that a lot of corporate America is willing to make a four or five figure spend. Right. When it comes to six, six figures yeah. and seven and eight, when you know, when you talk about tens of millions of dollars, right. eight figures, right? That becomes mainstream corporate dollars. Yes, no indeed. more a diversity spend. And Correct. once it becomes That's mainstream right. and goes in with every other opportunity they can spend their marketing dollars on, poof, opportunity goes yeah, away. Yeah. 
we can't do anything with four and five figures. That, yeah. that doesn't do anything. But you know, it, it's interesting, right? When you think about that, it, it's, it's, it's almost like an exposure to opportunity type scenario. So individual companies that maybe have marketing or operational leaders that are of color, mm-hmm. right, right, may make the decisions at the, you know, $20 million level to say, no, we're going to make an investment here because we think we can get a return here. Yeah. Right. But if yeah. you're not, if you're at that level and you're not a person of color, you don't think that, hey, that's really important or that's something that we can do, that could easily be cut. Yeah. Or can easily say, mm, it's scary. Make that investment, like, right? Even the person of color who makes that call, that's a risk. Right. That's, that's a big, big, big risk. risk. Yep. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. a, big that's risk. a big risk. I can yep. name names and I'm not going to no, about some of our yeah, about some of our black leaders that are at that C suite level, CEOs that have been approached and it's like Mm-mm. no return call. Not so, doing that yeah. one. Nope. Yeah. Not going it's, that way. It's almost this is the right, wrong word, but it's almost like kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if you think about it, there's no black breakout superstar in NASCAR mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Like Bubba is doing well, mm-hmm. but like unlike Tiger and the Williams sisters, he hasn't dominated yet. Because mm-hmm. once they dominated, you saw support participation from the African-American Thank community you. like spike in yeah. both cases. And then when that spike happens... But it's a chicken and egg. Right. Why aren't exactly. we dominating? Because you need the finances exactly. to be able to do it. it you is, need it the resources to do it. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you are only unlike, and I'll make this distinction: unlike Venus and Serena or Tiger, mm-hmm. that's an individual sport. Right. NASCAR right. is a team sport. That's Don't right. get it twisted. You think about the you driver, are relying but it's upon everybody yeah. in that in that wheel for all those cogs to yeah. work. Okay. Mm-hmm. You could be the greatest driver, and if your team sucks, you are not going to do well. Yeah. You cannot put a. 3,500-pound stock car on your back and make it work. It's the people. I'll tell you this. The races are won and lost, for the most part, at the shop before the cars even get to the track. They are engineered so much to the hilt now that after all the wind tunnel testing, all the uh, simulations are done in terms of ride height and all that attitude of the car, these cars come to the track. If you look at a stock car now, it's got about a quarter-inch clearance. That's it from the ground quarter inch, maybe even less. Before there was ride heights, shocks and springs and all that stuff. These suckers are on the ground now because they've able to, been able to maximize what the attitude is aerodynamically that makes that car fast. All that's done by all the engineers that are back at the shop. It used to be the case in racing in, in, in NASCAR that the majority of people hired were mechanics, mm. fabricators, body hangers, stuff like that. Now they're all engineers. They're all doing simulations because you can't test. You can't take your car out and test unless it's official Goodyear test, right? The official tire sponsor of NASCAR. Right. You can't go out there and burn those that you know that fuel and 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 those tires to go out there and, and perfect anything. Now it's all simulations, all computers, it's all engineering. It's crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's a it's a whole different dynamic. And then you know, so this that's a situation with Daryl. He's got the problem whereby he's in an underfunded team. Right. Richard Petty Motorsports is underfunded. So I don't care how Good. well he can drive. Yeah. Yeah. He's not going to come to the fore unless everything is, you know, Explain loaded Explain when bear. you say come to the fore. Break it down for a little I mean, running at the front. He's not going to be running at the front. He's not going to be winning on a consistent basis, kind of like right. you were saying, unless everything is there. Everything, yeah. there's want for nothing. Let me tell you the other thing about, you know, how, what distinguishes me in my scenario versus like Willie T. Ribs and, and Bubba. Right. Willie T. Ribs' father, was a race car driver. So he was exposed to it at a very young age and his father put him um, into racing, sent him to Europe to get, you know, to get his his experience to go racing. He became an Indy 500 driver and like I said, did some stuff in NASCAR. Daryl's father is white. His mother's black. His father has a very successful business and spent over a million dollars of family money Mm -hmm. to to give Bubba the opportunity to go racing in NASCAR. How many black families do you know are going to spend a million dollars on their kid to possibly, you know, at single digit year, you know, I think Daryl was maybe, you know, three, four, five years old when he started to wow. go racing. How many black families, you know, are going to put their kid in there? I can tell you right now that to start out in go-kart racing, competitive go-kart racing at the single digit year, a family could spend six figures, over $100,000, $100,000 to run for go-karting? a championship in go-karting. I'm talking about these go-kart teams now are 18-wheel, semi-tractor trailer teams. Did you mean 100,000? 100,000, six Jesus. figures. How many black families are going to put their kid, not knowing if they're going to want to do it or not, in this sport? For $100,000. For $100,000. Oh t- I'm looking at my children sideways if they don't want to go to soccer practice right. for $45. Oh, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> 
Yeah. I'm saying that to run for a championship as a single digit, you know, kid, the wow. family spend can easily spend over $100,000 because these go-karts are being hauled all around to these, you know, races across the country and everything. If you run for a championship in 18-wheel semi-tractor trailers. How fast it's do these no go-karts go? Well, for the kids, are you saying it, it, it all like depends the on the ones where you spend the hundred grand and I like well, just okay, what's the so range for the kids? Um, they'll they'll no go for, they'll go about 50, 40, 50 miles an hour. And how old are these kids? Oh, single, you know, six, seven years old. I thought oh, you said single. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's when I was racing. My, you know, my last competitive um, racing was karting. I mm-hmm. did everything in reverse. I started out in a big car, <laughs> and then my last competitive <laughs> racing, I'm, I, it's crazy. Was that, in that's your model. Fuck that. Yeah. I'm breaking that model. I, right. I'm I did it completely do it my way. I did everything backwards, man. I lived my life in reverse. Um, and so what I'm trying to say is in 2012, I represented Team USA in international go-kart competition by going over to Puerto Mayo, Portugal and racing shifter carts. My shifter carts would go 85, 90 miles an hour. What? No suspension. You're right off the ground. What? Yeah. 85, 90 miles Dude, How an does hour. your body take that? No suspension. No Go suspension. Card, it's rough. I mean, I uh, wear a, rip, a flak jacket for rib protection, that sort of thing. But there's no seatbelts. You fly, you know, if you, if you crash, you are typically thrown from the vehicle, you know, what? from the go-kart. Yeah. So that was my last competitive. Oh, my God. What I was supposed to be doing when I was this high, you know, five, six, seven years old, I did when I was, you know, 50 you know, 50, 51, whatever the case was, something like that. Yeah. Dude, wow, man. My big ass get in the golf, the, the go-karts at Dave and Buster's, and I need Motrin. <laughs> <laughs> when it's over. I don't even drink it. I'd be looking for the Crown Royal. Like, yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Take the wife go-kart in the day. There That's you go. crazy. There you 90 go. miles 90 an miles hour. an hour. Yeah. And no yeah. seatbelt. No seatbelt. You got you a helmet on for sure. Yeah. You, you, you know. Yeah. Tuck and roll. <laughs> Man, I would I would show up dressed like one of Missy Elliott's early videos and the right, whole the, the whole big, black joint on <laughs> big bubble suit. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so, so carding so, is serious. Carding yeah. is serious, and it seems really dangerous too. Like it has the potential to be really dangerous. It has the potential of being dangerous, of course. Yeah. And, you know, racing in general is dangerous. You know, but we don't have a death wish. You know, we know what the risks are. Yeah. Um, and you take them, you know, but you take every precaution to make sure that you come home that night, whatever the case is. Yeah. But that's you, that's what you're signing Have up you for. Have you ever ran into any situation where, like a crash or a near crash? Come on, or- man. Every professional race car driver has crashed. It's a matter of how many times, right? And I've been very fortunate because I've never really? shed blood. I've never broken a bone. But one time at uh, Texas Motor Speedway in 2004... I had this crash with another driver. We went into the safer safer barrier, which is like a, a compression wall, not just concrete, because safety has come <laughs> has evolved. Right. Unfortunately, the wall kind of stretches with you, right? Yeah, it, yeah. it compresses. It, it's it's energy absorbing, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And this these safety improvements were as a result of the death of Dale Earnhardt. NASCAR figured if Dale Earnhardt could die, anybody could die. Yeah. And so, um, anyway, this other competitor and I, we went to this safer barrier, and, we, and you know, we crashed and. Um, I woke up in the ambulance going to the hospital. So I got knocked out. I had a concussion and it was the only concussion I had, fortunately. But had I not seen the video of them showing my truck coming to rest, my dropping the window net, my taking my helmet off, putting on the hook, putting my hat on, climbing out of the truck, walking and waving to the fans, I went in the ambulance. You I would have never thought that and didn't remember it? any of that happened. I didn't remember any of that. What? So people say, what? you know, aren't you afraid, you know, after having a crash like that? Man, I was none the worse for wear. Like, I didn't I can't feel be afraid. I don't even remember. I don't remember. It. It. I was like I got in the ambulance going. Everybody, I was still good. Yeah, I was in the ambulance going, where are we going? Why am I here? You know? And they're like, you're in a crash. <laughs> I was like, really? And then I saw what the truck looked like, and I was like, man, had it not been for, again, what's called the, you know, Safety, safer barrier, impact absorbing barrier, and the Hans device, which is the, the head and neck system, which is like a collar that makes sure that your helmet doesn't go very f- far forward because that's what killed Dale Earnhardt. He had a basal skull fat fracture where his head snapped forward and, at, at the base of his, of his neck and his, and, his, and his skull. That's how he died at like 40, 45 <laughs> miles an hour. So, it, like I said, wow, they okay. devised something um, called a Hans device. And I was wearing the Hans device, and they had the energy-absorbing barriers. And if it wasn't for those, I probably wouldn't be here right now, in all honesty. Because three years prior, a guy by the name of Tony Roper crashed at the exact same point with right into a con- solid concrete wall with no Hans device and died. 
truck looked the same as mine. So, you know, I, I, I thank the, uh, you know, innovators, the inventors, the Hans device, you know, just about every day. Cause you know, yeah, if it wasn't for that. I, I probably wouldn't be here. Mm. So yeah, we understand the risks. We mm. try to be safe, but you know, that comes with the territory. Yeah. You can't be a race car driver and think there's not going to be risk. Yeah, look, I'm not built for a tough or something. I'm, <laughs> I'm not ready. You know what it is, man? I'm risk averse. <laughs> speed, <laughs> speed is a drug and you can't get enough of it. Ooh. That's all there is to it, man. People were like, you know, why did you want to be a race car driver? Obsession with speed, cars and speed. I just cannot go fast enough. That's all there was to it. Comp- competition was secondary. It's like, yeah, I like beating other people, but I just love speed. You know? Yeah. Mm. That was it. That's, that's scary yes, sir. for me. Yeah. Oh, come I'm, on, y'all. Everybody's yeah. got their calling. That was mine. That's I, I'm mine. with you. I'm, right. I'm, I'm right. glad that it was your, your calling. Call because yes. like, yeah. if, if the Lord would have said, Vince, I'm going to need you to drive these race cars and hold all <laughs> the color on your back. Jesus, we ain't going far. <laughs> <laughs> we ain't going far. If I get in this car, two, three feet. I'm, so, I'm, yeah. Mm. I'll tell you what, right. man, there's nothing like 100,000 people, you know, just cheering and screaming. And, you know, man, it's yeah, that, adrenaline. That's pretty cool. But yeah, the adrenaline rush of racing, man. You know, at the time, NASCAR had 43 cars that would start the race. Now it's down to 40 because they're having a hard time filling the field of 40. But, you know, 42 other maniacs out there, you know, trying to have the <laughs> same goal, trying to get to the same destination first, man. And, you know, we're inches apart at that speed and, you know, banging on each other and rubbing doors. And we're on a little bitty contact patch. You know, it's almost like we're floating above the surface, you know, because the downforce isn't enough for, you know, all that power and all that speed. So, I mean, your contact patch is almost minuscule, especially when you're in the draft at Daytona or Talladega, you know, because like in a truck, for example, you're going 180, 185 by yourself. And then you pick up that draft, you know, with 10 or so other, you know, trucks. And all of a sudden you're doing about 192, 195. You pick up a good 15, you know, 12, 15 miles an hour just when you pick up the draft. And it's, it's hard to describe. It's like floating on air, man. It is so cool. So for the people cool. listening who, who may not understand, when you say contact patch, what you mean is there's a surface area of the tire, but you're yes. going so fast. As wide as that tire is. Only a very small percentage of the tires actually touching the road while you drive. That's right? absolutely right, man. You, you know your thing, don't you? <laughs> Shoot, tell people something else. <laughs> That's right. You are you are dancing on a very thin ribbon of rubber. It is not the ten or twelve inches of width. You're on like about an inch of it. You know, an inch or two. That's it. That's it. Yeah. The one false move, and you don't have a lot of grip. Let me tell you, you don't have a lot of grip. You got a lot of faith in you know that technology keeping you stuck to the track. Mm. Well, earlier you mentioned the fans and we talked mm-hmm. a little bit about the fan experience. Mm-hmm. Were the fans ever problematic for you? I know, like I think I've been to several races and I think, like I can be honest, I've never had an obvious bad experience at a NASCAR race mm-hmm. that I felt was based on my ethnicity. Right. right? Never. I, I, I have literally never felt that way. Um, I've been scared or concerned, but... Within I never reason. saw it. And, and half that's my own perception. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. did you ever have an experience with a fan or, or where? You know what? My most vivid recollection where I was really scared, intimidated, anxiety, you name it, mm-hmm. was in 1990 when I went to Talladega for the Sears Die Hard 500 for the express reason of meeting a um, brand manager to talk to him about sponsorship. And so I parked in the lot, went into, you know, the track. Um, we came up through the grandstands and started walking up to the suites mm-hmm. outside, right, where the grandstands were all exposed. And I saw a conversation stop. I saw fingers point. And my body temperature must have went up about 30 degrees because I felt beads of sweat coming down. And I was like, holy cow, man. I mean, it was clear that I was an anomaly. I mean, wow. there's no question that people were like, what, what is you this? here for? Mm-hmm. Who are, you know, I made a beeline. I made no eye contact. I went straight <laughs> up them steps as fast as I could to meet with this gentleman. But did they say anything? No. I could just, you know, like I could tell people were engaged with each other. And all of a sudden, man, you could hear a pin drop. It was crazy, you know. Um, but, you know, nowadays, I, NASCAR tries to make the environment welcoming, you know. Right. Um, they discourage. It's a party. Yeah, they discourage those that uh, bring in stars and bars, but they don't prohibit it. 
They have a program where they will trade out your Confederate flag for an American flag. Really? Yes, they do. They have a program where they will do that. But they will not, if somebody really wants their Confederate flag, they they will not stop you from, from, you know, from waving it in the breeze. Um, You know, and so I think that NASCAR is smart enough to realize that they have to be reflective of America. They cannot continue to do it with the traditional, you know, redneck fan. It's not going to happen. They see what's going on in the stands. the, The same tried and true ways of them doing business is failing. Mm-hmm. So you know, it won't work. It won't work. Yeah, and and they're finally coming around to realizing that, but it's too late. Some people say it's like, okay, well, <laughs> you can rearrange the deck chairs any way you want. You're still the Titanic. Uh, that's a little harsh, but <laughs> there's a, some truth. You know, hey, yeah. you might have to take sit up and take notice because you know you can spin it any way you want to, but you know the stats don't lie. Yeah, if if you had an opportunity to 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 influence. Because I know you love racing. Mm-hmm. That's a passion, right? It is. And you wouldn't want to see an a, a institution such as that decline and no, then go away. No, it hurts my heart. Yeah. It hurts my heart. What, what do you think could happen to, to, one, enable more African Americans to get involved in the sport at a, at a high level to kind of push down? And then also to revive the sport in totality? Well, the answer to your f- f- first question, you need a winner. That's what we do as black folks. We gravitate around winners, yeah. okay? Mm-hmm. If you're just out there tooling around, whatever the case is, it's not going to happen. One of the coolest things to happen to Daryl Wallace last year at the Daytona 500 is that he finished second, okay? It was kind of flukish because there were lots of crashes and all that stuff. Hey, still not taking anything away from him. He's got through those crashes and all that kind of stuff. He finished second. And man, they trumpeted that all through, you know, the That's media and advertisements and stuff like yeah. that and commercials and stuff. Like, and the rest of his season went right into the toilet because the real, uh, the fact of the matter is in a, t- in a restrictor plate race like Daytona or Talladega, anybody can win, okay? The bulk and majority, the remainder of the, of the races in the season really determine who has strength. And it was made clear after Daytona, there was no strength in that team. Why is there no strength in that team? They don't have the funding. They don't have the resources to be a front-running team. That's mm. all there is to it. It's as simple as that. If um, Richard Petty Motorsports, who Daryl races for, does not get that funding, the only way he's going to win is if it's going to be effectively a fluke. Mm. If it's oh. a situation like a, Tal- a Talladega or Daytona a plate race where everybody crashes out and your last man standing, that's effectively what happened at Daytona. He just last doesn't year. have the resources to compete at that level. They right? don't have the resources. There have been times last year where the car basically didn't have anything on it, but like Richard Petty Motorsports on it, you know? There mm-hmm. was no corporate, real corporate support. The only reason they had, you know, were able to continue to field the car is because Richard Petty Motorsports is partnered with a company called like Medallion. It's some financial company that they partnered with. And so they put some infusion of capital in there to keep the car out there on the track and all that kind of stuff. But they need a major sponsor. They need for a $20 million sponsorship, they're probably running at half that. Wow. Money buys speed. That's the simplest way I can put it to you guys. Money buys speed. Why? It buys the best people. It buys the best equipment. It buys everything that you need to be fast, to be competitive. It buys you the best crew, over-the-wall crew. You know, instead of getting 12-second, you know, 14-second pit stops, you're getting 12-second pit, pit stops. You know what that two seconds means in, in a pit stop? That means the difference between coming back out in first position and being mid-pack. Wow. And having to go all the way back through all those guys again to get up to the front. But you have to catch up. You got to catch back up. You lose two seconds in the pits. So that money buys you the fastest jack man. It buys you the, you know, the quickest tire carrier, the quickest tire changer, the quickest gas man, the best strategist up on the box, the best crew chief, mm-hmm. all those elements that are um, integral. It's a team sport. It's a team sport. And that's why, like I said, it's going to be so hard for him without the resources because he cannot put that car in his back. So... For us to change, to be out there, to get involved and excited about it, we need somebody winning. Plain and simple. If Tiger wasn't winning, Venus Arena weren't winning, we wouldn't give a flip. Arthur Ashe wasn't winning, we wouldn't care. You know what I'm saying? Especially when you talk about individual sports. You got to have somebody kicking butt. When he he came in second, I thought he won. Right. You would think he did. Yeah, they made mm-hmm. such a big noise about it. I thought he won. Austin Dillon won, and he got no notoriety. Yeah, I've never heard that name before. Exactly. <laughs> Austin Dillon won. <laughs> Bubba took second, and Bubba got all the publicity. And they put that, they tried to, you know. That's how they did Ruben and with Clay Aiken. Mm-hmm. That's how they did Ruben. 
Yeah. Yeah. Sorry for 2004, Ruben. Yeah, Ruben was amazing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, so we're getting toward the end. I want to ask two questions. Yeah. Both kind of on the inspirational side. Mm-hmm. Knowing that you have been in these shoes before, what advice would you give Bubba now, Daryl, right, right now? You know, he's got to be in the game. So continue to do all he can to, you know, rally his team, you know, support his team, make his team as effective as possible. Um, continue to be um, positive and attractive to a potential sponsor, to a corporation to come on board. You know, being an angry black man will definitely not do, do it. it. That will not do it. That will alienate you. He's got a great fan base. And I don't see, you know, they've been talking to Domino's. They don't understand why Domino's isn't coming on board. He basically puts Coca-Cola on a pedestal because he's got a personal services relationship with Coca-Cola. You would think Coca-Cola would step up, but, you know, they got what's called the Coca-Cola family of drivers. So they sponsor a whole bunch of them. So they're not taking... Picking favorites, right? Papa John's needs to step up. They're trying to make face anyway. Yeah, you know. Right. Um, so what I would tell them to do is, you know. Louis Vuitton need to right now. <laughs> or Gucci. Or I would Prada. T- I would tell him to do everything that he is doing. You know, he's got a great social media presence. Mm-hmm. You know, keep on doing that. Um, make yourself attractive. Yeah. That's really what it comes down to. And <laughs> heaven help him if he can win. You know, if he wins, if he legitimately wins, then that'll be huge. Real, real big. You know, finishing second is finishing second. Second in racing, we consider to be the first loser. <laughs> that's what that's we consider. what Ricky Bobby said. That's it. <laughs> well, you know, they got, no, Ricky Bobby got it from us. But yeah, it became popular because of Ricky Bobby. Yeah, but yeah, second's the first loser. That's, that's how we've considered it for years. Second place that. sucks. You know? No participation trophies. Right? Mm-hmm. No. All right, brother, you got anything, man? I'm in man. awe. I'm amazed at, at, at <laughs> a pioneer in, in such a space in the nuggets that you you provided. I, I it, a couple things I think about. One is starting a career with the support that you had was amazing, mm-hmm. and then doing it at the age that you were yeah. was amazing. So it's like a you figure out that passion, mm-hmm. and then you figure out how to align and get the right levels of support to actually play it out, and then have a target and a goal at the end. This is hey, I'm gonna try. It. We're gonna do it for three years. If it works, great. If it doesn't, we'll get back to it. So, but I, I love that. That's just an inspirational piece. I, Thank I you. want to ensure that, you know, we recognize one and while black, and then also to reiterate for our listeners too, because that's important. Yeah. Appreciate what, it. What I what I what I really kind of gravitated towards and got from this was the fact that I can think about instances every single day where we walk out into the world and and we may be hesitant to go in a certain direction because of what a group of white guys may look like in that direction or whatnot. The way we may feel sitting at our own jobs, at our own desks, mm-hmm. um, knowing that we're in a white-dominated world and the way we have to alter our behavior sometimes. Mm-hmm. And hearing your story and, and learning about it reminds me of our ability to be truly fearless. Because y- you talked about like having fear. Mm-hmm. And I know it's almost confusing to, to talk about having fear, but being fearless at the same time. But the, the differentiation to me is not allowing that fear to stop you. So even though you had reservations, and you had those perceptions you had to overcome, and you had those those fears, yep. your feet didn't slow, right? right? You still broke into an industry that, that never said, come in. Right. right? <laughs> That's and, for sure. And, it's and not welcome. <laughs> right. They may have never said, get out, mm-hmm. but you had to have felt that sometime, maybe in minuscule ways, maybe in larger ways, but to stay and to create the noise that you did. I think that's something that we as black people in general can pay attention to and replicate, whether it's in NASCAR or the business world or school or basketball or computer science, whatever it is, just like understanding how you took that fearlessness to overcome anything that would have held your feet still, I think is powerful. Thanks, man. And, and that's what I picked up from this. And like personally, I want to say, like, real talk, thank you, because... It's not a, like there are not a whole lot of yous out there. No. There's not a whole lot. No, there's yep. very few. I'm in a very select group. But, you know, my whole story is one of passion and realizing, you know, what it is I was given a gift to do. Right. And not let anybody say I couldn't do it. Not let anything get in my way. Because tr- trust me, I, I was discouraged all along the way from believe. a bunch of folks that are like, you don't belong here. Probably on both sides. This ain't for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, even from our side, 
from people that are trying to protect me yeah. from, yeah. you know, potential yep. disappointment. Well-intentioned. Yeah, well-intentioned. But that's like, no, uh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this, you know? And so it happened. And, you know, I guess I also wanted to say that uh, I've spoken to lots of people um, <laughs> given opportunities to do so. And um, people are like, you know, you've got to tell more people about what you've done. You've Absolutely. got to tell your story. And so I'm in the midst of writing a memoir about my experience, a motivational memoir. You should. Um, Absolutely. That uh, I, I'm tentatively calling Winning in Reverse. And it's because of, the like way I you said, did it. The way you- <laughs> I did it. I won. I got there. But I did it the hard way. I did it the opposite way that everybody else did. And um, so I'm, I'm working with a ghostwriter and uh, we're getting there close to the end. Is of the, it Drake? So, yeah, we, we're getting there. But, um, yeah, I'm hoping to um, hopefully encourage people to go to BillLester.com at some point in the near future. Not now, because you know, my, my, my website's an embarrassment. It talks all about, you know, Bill Lester, the race car driver. Not Bill Lester, you know, the speaker, the motivational speaker. And so um, I'm working on getting that together and uh, I'm excited about it. I think that uh, a lot of folks, you know, from the standpoint, like you said, doing things that um, are risky, taking the risk, um, believing in yourself, all the things that I have been able to put together that have been the um, underpinnings of my success of being able to do what I wanted to do with my life. So, uh, yeah, you know, I'm excited about it. It's not here yet. I can't, you know, say go to Amazon or whatever the case is or, you know, whatever the publisher might be. But uh, it's coming. Well, whenever it's ready, we'll, we'll tell them all about it, bring Absolutely. you back, make sure they know. That works. And it's funny because like, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that because I've known you for years. And there were things I had no idea, like until I really started digging into research. And I had no idea that. This is the same dude that I play golf with? (laughs) Again, like Tom Jordan said, that little known black history fact. I had no idea. (laughs) I'm out here with history and future, same time. (laughs) Right here. Well, that's that's it. That's it, Bill. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Man, I had a great time. Are you kidding? How could I not? Thank you for coming, You guys are, you know, cutting the cut-ups, man. (laughs) (laughs) This has been just like, hey, just kicking it, man. It's It's been a pleasure. That's it. Wild Black, make sure you hit the episode description. Bill's contact information is in there, as well as a little bit more about him. I'm glad you rode with us, literally, figuratively, pun intended. <laughs> Catch you later. Peace. Yeah.